from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. It's really fun to look at those (laughs) and see the prices and how prices of things change. One of the menus had like a prime rib steak or something that was like $2.50. And so you're just like, dang, well, I could get that today. This week on the show, we talk with Hilary Fleck, curator of the Order Up exhibit on the history of local restaurants at the Monroe County History Center. And we have a persimmon pudding recipe with a history of its own. All that and more is just ahead in the next hour, so stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Daniela Richardson is here this week with updates from Harvest Public Media. Welcome, Daniela. Hi, Kate. It's good to be here. About 750 buffalo raised in preserves throughout the Midwest will travel across the country to tribal lands. As Harvest Public Media's Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports, it's part of an indigenous-led effort to restore the once endangered species. At the Nature Conservancy's Nachusa Grasslands in Illinois, a field crew of scientists are tagging, swabbing, and preparing some 30 buffalo to be transported to three different indigenous nations. Restoration ecologist Elizabeth Bach calls the buffalo a keystone species. And we see evidence of um, the shedded fur in the spring that birds will actually use that in their nests to help keep them warm. So they're impacting all species across all trophic levels in the prairie ecosystem. This is part of the Intertribal Buffalo Council's 30-year effort to rehome buffalo to tribal management. So far, 20,000 buffalo have gone to 79 tribes. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. A class action lawsuit against the U.S. government on behalf of black and brown farmers was announced in October. As Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports, the suit alleges that the government broke its promise of debt relief to socially disadvantaged farmers. The American Rescue Act plan promised $4 billion of debt relief to farmers of color by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That relief was stalled by lawsuits from multiple banks and white farmers. The Inflation Reduction Act passed this August repealed that legislation and replaced it with relief mostly for economically distressed farmers of any race. Many farmers of color might not receive that money anymore, says Ben Crump, the civil rights attorney that filed the suit. The black and brown farmers relied on the promise from the government. Well, there are several farmers facing foreclosure. A USDA spokesperson said without the Inflation Reduction Act funding, the debt relief would have been tied up in court for years. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco and Eva Tesfai for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Daniela Richardson. Hayes has become sort of the California of Kansas, a place where people don't flush a toilet, linger in the shower, or tend to a lawn without thinking about how much water they're using. It's an outlier in the Great Plains and Midwest now, but as climate change intensifies droughts, more cities here might have to embrace a similar conservation sensibility. 
David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports. It's Thursday night at a street fair in Hayes. Some kids line up to see the fire engine or eat pizza. Others run over to get their moment with a big blue local celebrity. You want to go say hi to that big old water drop? Go say hi to it. <laughs> That's Water Smart Wally, a five foot tall raindrop, the mascot for the city's water conservation program. As soon as we came in, it's the blue drop. Wally gets around parades, festivals, classrooms. Kids love him, he loves hugs. <laughs> So he gets lots of those. Holly Dickman is the city's water conservation specialist. And as far as she knows, she and Wally are the only ones doing their particular jobs in the whole state. Saving water is just part of life in this northwest Kansas town of about 20,000 people. And it starts from an early age. It's not every town where kids draw pictures of people xeriscaping and using rain barrels in the annual art contest. But Dickman says changing the way Hayes thinks about water took generations. That's how it is. If you grew up here, you lived with it, and that's the culture. We are that way because we had to be. We have to be. Hayes has no other choice. It's the only city in Kansas with more than 15,000 people, but no sustainable source of water. It's caught in the middle, too far west for reliable rainfall and reservoirs, and too far east to tap into the massive, if disappearing, Ogallala Aquifer. So when prolonged drought hits, things can get dire. People here still remember the water crisis of 1992 when taps almost went dry. Here's city manager Toby Doherty. It was a wake-up call for the city leaders at the time. So Hayes put some real money into conserving what little water it has, giving rebates to residents who install low-flow toilets, paying homeowners to replace sprinkler-dependent lawns with drought-tolerant native grass, irrigating sports fields with wastewater. That saved more than 100 million gallons last year alone. When people in Hayes turn on the radio, they might even hear seasonal ads scaring them away from wasting water. Making adjustments to your everyday water usage may sound scary, but there's no need to feel like a monster. Some changes haven't always been popular, like the one enforced by Hayes police that says residents can't water their lawns from noon to 7 p.m. for part of the year. And if these sound like the types of extraordinary measures you'd see in the desert southwest... It's because we've had to look to places like Las Vegas and Tucson and Phoenix. I mean, we stole our landscaping regulations from Utah. And it's worked. Today, Hayes uses roughly half the water it did four decades ago, even though the town's population has grown by 20%. It now goes through less water per capita than just about any other city in Kansas, even less than Phoenix. The problem is we are the only city in Kansas that is acting like a city in the Mojave Desert or the Sonoran Desert. Because of that, you know, a lot of the state looks at us as the poor people that don't have any water. But as climate change pushes dry western weather eastward, Hayes could get some company. Decades from now, cities like Wichita or Salina might have to rethink their own water use. Here's Nusha Ajami, a water expert at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab in California. A lot of communities are grappling with this, like, drier droughts, longer droughts, and a little bit of a shift in mindset from droughts being an occasional thing to maybe droughts are our new reality. But Hayes leaders fear that even their best water-saving efforts might not be enough to help the city survive that new reality. Hayes Water Director Jeff Crispin hikes down the bank of the Smoky Hill River, which feeds the city's primary water wells. Most years, it's one of the main rivers in northwest Kansas. Now, this riverbed is bone dry, etched with tire tracks from four-wheelers. Paints a picture of what we're up against. You look west, you look east, and you don't see any water. That concerns me. To shore up its long-term survival, Hayes plans to build a 70-mile pipeline to bring water in from three counties away. But even if that gets state approval, it'll be years before it's up and running. 
So once again, Hayes finds itself caught in the middle, hoping the water-saving endeavors that began decades ago can help it hold on a bit longer. Those have to continue, especially for years like this. For the Kansas News Service, I'm David Condos in Hayes. This story is being distributed by Harvest Public Media in collaboration with the Kansas News Service. Next up, we have a persimmon recipe handed down from a notable figure in the Bloomington community. We'll hear that story and walk through the recipe together after a short break. Stay with us. When Susan Gray was growing up in Bloomington, Indiana, she lived a few blocks away from the Kinsey family. That's right, the Kinsey family, as in Alfred Kinsey, the famous biologist and sexologist, founder of the Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University in 1947, now known as the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. The Kinseys lived in a brick house on First Street, and they had a large yard with many native plants. Alfred's wife, Clara, was the member of the Kinsey family that Susan Gray remembers most. The Kinsey kids were a good 10 years older than her, so she never played with them. But Clara Kinsey ran a day camp that Susan attended for two weeks each summer as a Girl Scout. Mrs. Kinsey, as Susan knew her, was a knowledgeable naturalist who would show them treasures from the natural world like a grass snake she had captured in a glass jar. Susan vividly recalls Mrs. Kinsey letting the snake out so the girls at the day camp could pet it. She was always at the day camp. She ran it for years and years and years. And, you know, we just looked up to her. She knew everything about everything in nature, so you couldn't stump her with a question. One of the activities was going on hikes around Morgan Monroe State Forest, and she was always pointing out various trees, bushes, animals, birds. I'm not sure about snakes. We did have that one snake that she brought in. <laughs> that was the first time I had ever felt the skin of a live snake. And it was very interesting, all the little scales on it. Everybody was very impressed with that. She was also a forager and had a recipe for persimmon pudding that she shared with Susan's mother, the Girl Scout troop leader who also knew Clara Kinsey socially through a hiking club that Mrs. Kinsey led. Susan's family had persimmon trees in their yard and they gathered them every year for baking. My colleague, Alex Chambers, visited Susan Gray this fall to hear about Mrs. Kinsey's persimmon pudding recipe. She's family. Alex knows her as Aunt Susie. And you grew up with eating this? Yeah, I grew up eating persimmon pudding, persimmon cookies. <laughs> Not so much persimmon bread. That, that I make that, and I think that is probably my favorite thing, but my mother didn't make that. So did you see Clara Kinsey using persimmons or making this recipe? No, I never saw her bake, but I, it, she was well known for all kinds of natural foods. And so this was definitely one of them. I assume she had a persimmon tree in her yard, but I'm not sure. And she shared the recipe around with like the hiking club? She shared the recipe with anybody who wanted it. <laughs> I think it was pretty popular. A lot of people have this recipe, and then a lot of people bake persimmon, a lot of people of my age at least, bake persimmon pudding, although many of them use different recipes. 
Susan notes that Clara Kinsey's recipe for persimmon pudding is not the only one out there. Indiana State Park Service sells a booklet of persimmon recipes from Bear Wallow Books. This has 17 pudding recipes, 6 bread recipes, 6 cake recipes, 8 cookie recipes, as well as pies, pancakes, biscuits, candy, and fudge. But Susan likes to make this one because it comes from Clara Kinsey. That's often how it is with food, isn't it? Our favorite dishes, our most treasured recipes, are the ones with a story behind them or a memory. The one Grandma used to make recipes that have been passed down or passed around for generations. I make it always for Thanksgiving, for family Thanksgiving. I make it for Christmas. I had a a friend who unfortunately had Alzheimer's and was at Jill's house, but she loved persimmon pudding and came out to help me pick up persimmons. And so when she was at Jill's house, I used to make a recipe in the fall and take it in and give it to them so that they could give it to her for dessert from time to time. Can we um, go do the recipe? We can do the recipe. Okay, so I'm going to make a two cup persimmon pudding because I'm sending some home with you (laughs) and some to Hank and some to various other people. So I have pulp from last year, which is frozen here in a two cup container. I bake it in a 10 by 10 glass thing. You have to bake it in either Corningware or Pyrex. You cannot bake it in a metal pan. It uh, discolors the pan and discolors the pudding. Hmm. And... You bake it in a slow oven, 325 or lower. So I'm going to start the oven now. Flour, sugar, soda, and the spices. Cinnamon, allspice, and ground cloves. Okay. Great. So there's the pulp. I mix it all in the same Pyrex that I'm going to bake it in. Saves a dish. That's nice. Okay, so the pulp, the egg... Two cups of milk and a scant cup of sugar. Um, I mix it all with a whip. Yeah, can you describe that? I've never seen a tool like that, I feel like. Oh, well, this is a special whip that I bought in Germany when we were in uh, several bed and breakfasts or apartments over there. They had them, and I thought it was so neat for mixing up soups and stuff like that that I prowled the supermarkets till I found one. But the ordinary whip that's, you know, that's a spiral works just as well. But this one has a small spiral that goes around a half circle, and I just think it's better. So. Okay. <laughs> We've mixed the wet ingredients. I beat in the flour with the whip rather than just dumping it in and mixing it with a spoon because it makes the consistency better. Okay, so it takes a while to sift it in in my sifter and then beat it in, but that's the way cooking is sometimes. I don't know, Alex, are you going to post the uh, recipe on the web or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I assume, that's I assume that's okay. Well, Clara's not around to object, but I think there are enough people that make her recipe that she would be thrilled to know that it's being <laughs> perpetuated. Yeah. 
Okay, that is the first cup okay. of flour. Cup two. And the soda. One teaspoon of soda. So this is all going in the sifter. Mm. The flour and the soda. And a teaspoon of cinnamon, a half a teaspoon of allspice, and a half a teaspoon of ground cloves. And if you don't happen to have ground cloves, you can substitute nutmeg, but it doesn't have the same, what do I want to say, bite to it. Yeah, cloves have a little bit of, yeah, yeah bite, They're I spicier guess. than nutmeg. Mm -hmm. You can use any kind of milk. I've, this is 2% I'm using, but my mother used whole, and I've even, in an emergency situation, used skim made from dried <laughs> dried skim milk, oh, wow. <laughs> reconstituted, so. That, not, that would be an emergency situation. Yes, that was an emergency situation. <laughs> but as I said, there isn't any shortening, so I think skim milk is probably not the best thing to use. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you want to get some fat in there somehow. Yeah. Okay, we're working on the second cup with the spices and the soda and everything in it. Like I said, it's not fast to make, but using the whip means that as you beat in the dry ingredients means that you're not trying to beat out lumps, and mm. which you probably would if you just dumped all the flour in and used right. a spoon. You know you're going to have to cut out some of this whisking. People aren't going to put up with ten minutes of whisking. <laughs> we're going to just we're just going to like air it raw. It's just going to be the whole thing. <laughs> now making it in the same pan that you bake it in does mean that it messes up the sides of the pan. So I go around with a spatula and scrape it down a little bit. So then in the oven for an hour and. I said a slow oven, 325 or lower, and it will, at the moment, it is very pale tan color. Although persimmon pulp is dark brown, but this is very pale tan color. But as it bakes, it will rise, turn dark, and then fall, which means that you have to bake it in a pan that has enough freeboard on it so that you don't want it much more than halfway up your corningware or whatever it is you're using because otherwise you'll have it overflow in your oven. Right. You will not like. So that's really it and uh, we will just wait for an hour and then we will have dessert. <laughs> Sounds great. Serve it. You're supposed to serve it with unsweetened whipped cream although we have been known to serve it with vanilla ice cream. Can't go wrong with vanilla ice cream. <laughs> they got the persimmon pudding in the oven and I suppose cleaned up the kitchen during that long hour of waiting for it to bake. Finally, the timer was going off and it was time to okay, check on the pudding. The timer. All right. Let's see what it looks like. Okay. Well, it has risen and then fallen. It has definitely fallen. Yep. So. We should be good. Let me see here. If I this in, it's still a little juicy in the middle, but I think it's going to be okay. So we can now have our dessert. It sounds great. So let's eat. Okay.
That was Alex Chambers in the kitchen with Susan Gray, baking a persimmon pudding recipe handed down from Clara Kenzie, the wife of the well-known biologist and sexologist Alfred Kenzie, who founded the Kenzie Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction at Indiana University. Clara Kenzie, a researcher herself, supported Alfred's work, and she was known to be an avid naturalist. She ran a day camp in the Morgan Monroe State Forest that Susan Gray attended for years as a child. You can find Clara Kenzie's recipe for persimmon pudding, along with hundreds more seasonal recipes, on our website, eartheats.org. Urban farmers who want to buy land often look to vacant lots. It seems like a win-win for the farmers and the city. The farmers get the land they need and can bring more food security to their neighborhoods. And the vacant lots are taken care of while the city gets more green space. But as Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports, urban farmers often struggle to get that land. Mediatrice Nyankuru moved to Kansas City seven years ago from East Africa. For the last several years, she's grown crops here that you might not normally see in the Midwest, like these African plants. Cassava leaves, muchicha, and white eggplant. Originally from Burundi, Nyankuru is part of a farm training program in Kansas City, Kansas, called New Roots for Refugees. It trains participants on farming methods and helps them establish their own businesses. Nyankuru recently graduated, and she's moving on to a piece of land she bought with another farmer. But it's not as big as she'd like. You see, my garden is still small. But the problem, too, is no water. The lack of water access and the inability to buy more land has kept them from moving off of the New Roots training farm. It's only supposed to be a four-year program. But program manager Semra Fetahovic says it's been increasingly difficult for their farmers to acquire land. So they end up staying longer. This year, we're actually leasing land to six graduates that can still rent land here. Next year, I think that number will be 10. For many of their farmers, it's been difficult to get a hold of the owners of vacant lots, who often live elsewhere. Even if they do get in touch, the owners may not want to sell. I think that's a really big frustration being in an urban setting is you just see so many vacant lots, yet the owners like don't want to let go of them. There's a multitude of private actors in that space, right? Likely some of whom are people holding on to it, hoping it goes up. Janelle O'Keefe is from the Center for Community Progress, a national nonprofit that helps cities deal with systemic vacancy. One of the ways that cities do that is by starting a land bank, a department that acquires vacant land and sells it. O'Keefe says farmers often have to deal with both land banks and private owners, as cities typically only own a portion of the vacant land. And land banks aren't always excited about selling those lots for farms and gardens. What we've seen through conversations and work we've done is the just the prevailing notion that the highest and best use of a property is something bricks and mortar. Detroit is a city that is known for having a lot of vacant land. Its land bank has about 60,000 vacant lots. Since a land bank was formed in 2008, it's been a little easier to buy property. 
That's according to Tafira Rushton. She's the co-founder of Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. We've come a long way and we have we have a ways to go. Rushton says before the land bank, there were lots of different entities that owned vacant land and no clear process on how to buy it. But even with the Detroit Land Bank Authority, she says the city still doesn't prioritize urban gardening. It's a secondary priority, not even a secondary. It's like a cute thing that people are doing in their eyes. Rushton believes that land access would get easier if cities just recognize the value of urban farms. A land bank spokesperson said their goal is to return these properties to productive use. Back in Kansas City, Kansas, the land bank only sold one property to an urban farm in the past two years. It prioritizes single-family housing. Andrew Davis is a commissioner for the Unified Government of Wyandotte County in Kansas City, Kansas. I don't think we have to choose. Davis says the land bank is in the process of changing its policies, and he thinks there's enough land to go around. I think there's a way in which we can uh, see, uh, um, you know, gardens and farmers thrive in KCK, all while still having that aggressive uh, movement for single-family homes. But he also says many of his colleagues don't agree, especially because houses generate more property taxes than gardens. Urban farmers argue they bring their own value to neighborhoods with productive green spaces and healthy food. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the American Midwest and Great Plains. You can find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Still to come on the show, a conversation with Hilary Fleck, curator of the Order Up exhibit at the Monroe County History Center. That's coming up after a short break. Stay with us. Hey, Earth Eats listeners. With the holiday season approaching, you might be looking for some baking ideas. Check out our YouTube channel, where you'll find videos of me making holiday cookies in my home kitchen. For instance, there's a chocolate pecan shortbread where you make the dough ahead of time, shape it into a log, and then freeze it. Then you can slice off a half dozen or so cookies to bake fresh as needed throughout the holiday season. The cookies are crisp and delicate with a phenomenal nutty chocolate flavor. The recipe videos are produced by Peyton Whaley with videographers Jacob Lindauer, Jacob Lindsay, and Saddam Al-Zabadi. You can find them by searching for Earth Eats on YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Hilary Fleck is the curator at the Monroe County History Center, a museum and research library dedicated to the history of Monroe County here in southern Indiana. Her exhibit, Order Up, was all about restaurants and highlighting the important part they play in our community. Earth Eats producer Toby Foster happens to work with Hillary at the History Center, and he noticed that the exhibit was receiving a lot of positive feedback from guests. Here's Toby talking with Hillary Fleck. The Order Up exhibit got me thinking about the role that restaurants can play in shaping a community and how that's evolved over the last hundred plus years. It included a lot of old photos, menus, advertisements, signs, and other memorabilia from the restaurants in Monroe County's past and its present. 
I sat down with Hillary just as the exhibit was wrapping up to talk some more about how the exhibit came together, what we can learn about the history of our community through its restaurants, and why the exhibit received such a warm response. I'm Hillary Fleck and I'm the curator at the Monroe County History Center. The Monroe County History Center is at uh, the corner of 6th and Washington, and we are the local history museum for Monroe County, Indiana, located in Bloomington, Indiana. We tell the history and culture of the people and places of Monroe County, Indiana. The Order Up exhibit featured a lot of the special, one-of-a-kind restaurants that were in Monroe County, from Ladyman's to Nick's to the Village Inn in Ellettsville. Some that are still open, some that are not. Most are not, actually, but unique restaurants to Monroe County that people really connected with that you can't find anywhere else. I asked Hillary about how she got the idea for the exhibit and how she began the process of figuring out which restaurants to include and which artifacts to include from those restaurants. The idea really came from one of our volunteers who has unfortunately passed away. She loved restaurants, all kinds of restaurants in Bloomington and Monroe County. And so she always had said to me that we need to be doing something for restaurants or we have a menu collection. And so she was like, we need to do something with the menus. It would be so cool. People would love to see that. And I was like, yeah, they would. That would be really cool. So we finally had the opportunity to do an exhibit on restaurants and menus. And so we started with what menus do we have in our collection? What does the collection contain? So that's kind of where we looked to highlight some of our early restaurants based on the artifacts in the collection, like we had quite a lot from Boxman's restaurant because Henry and Hattie Boxman donated a lot of their materials to the museum's collection. So we already had a basis for that. Ladyman's, we also had several pieces and photographs from Ladyman's Cafe. So some of the choices for what restaurants were highlighted in the exhibit were natural, like, okay, we've got this and we've got this. So we'll talk about these. Others were not so natural. We didn't have pieces, but we kind of sought them out based on their history with the community, like Nick's English Hut. We had just a few small items. We had a a menu and we had a coaster (laughs) from Nick's. And so I was able to talk to the owners and they were able to lend, based on just sheer coincidence, they were able to lend uh, one of the original booths from the 1920s restaurant to the exhibit. So we were really lucky to have that addition to the exhibit. I think it really added something special. And it was something from the original iteration of the restaurant from the 1920s. So that was really great. But yeah, we did have to seek out some other loans and donations to the exhibit. Our collections and then also obviously the public library has a lot of resources and vertical files. And so we did do a lot of research on restaurants. If it's really well known, it's got a lot of newspaper articles or clippings, things like that about it. And so that kind of helped us narrow down what we wanted to focus on as well. And then I tried to do some unique restaurants as well. From my desk in the back office, I can just barely see the entrance to the museum, but I can usually overhear what visitors have to say. And I've noticed over the last few months that this exhibit really struck a nerve with people. Almost every visitor came in asking where the Order Up exhibit was and left with a wistful expression on their face, often sharing their own stories with staff or with each other. And I guess it's not so surprising, since food can play such a big part in our life experiences, and particularly in our shared experiences with others. 
I asked Hillary to share a little more about the reaction she's received from members of the community. It's really been very exciting to see that people are coming in specifically to see this exhibit. I, I felt like I always knew that people would really like it. People always seem to connect on, in Facebook groups about like, oh, I remember this dish at this particular restaurant. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was so good. Like, do you remember that waitress? Wasn't she funny? Like, oh, yeah. And so people really share a lot of memories that are specifically around restaurants. And so I always thought that this was such a good idea and it had a lot of potential. But I think like actually having it up, I'm really excited about the draw that we're getting to the History Center. And and like you said, like people coming specifically for it, it's really exciting to see. I love going to restaurants. I love go- meeting friends at restaurants. And so I'm glad that we were able to kind of tap into that connection and the nostalgia around restaurants that people love that are not there anymore. Two of the biggest ones that I often hear back about are Ladyman's and Poncho's. Ladyman's was a diner. There was like a diner counter side and then there was like a seating, a table seating side. And it had a counter that was, from what I can tell in photographs, maybe like 10 to 12 feet long. Very well known for its like lunch counter, like coffee counter kind of scene. And so a lot of lawyers and public servants would come together for coffee in the morning or lunch and that sort of thing. So I hear a lot of like having lunch at the counter at Ladyman's. Everybody seems to be really, really heartfelt for Ladyman's. They really miss it. As someone who moved to Bloomington just after Ladyman's Cafe closed in 2006, I can personally attest to this fact. The other example that Hillary gave, Pancho's Via, was just a little before my time. Pancho's was in the 80s, like 82. I think it was open from 72 to 82, I believe. Pancho's was started by Danny Pavlich. I'm not sure I said that right. He was a student at IU. He was actually Eastern European descent. And he came to IU as a student. He kind of started making food out of his dorm room for his friends until it's like kind of snowballed into this thing. Then he opened Poncho's in 1972. And that's what I've heard was like the first international food establishment in Bloomington was Poncho's in 1972. So (laughs) that's what Danny's like claim to fame was he was like the first international restaurant. It was in a house built and like kind of configured into a restaurant. And then it kind of expanded to have an outdoor patio and then like an enclosed patio. Like that was a big thing is they enclosed, they they cut down a tree and like enclosed the patio. His daughter had said that he had parties after closing. If you were there at closing, he wouldn't kick you out, but he also wouldn't let anybody else in. So it would be like end up being like this exclusive party at Poncho's. (laughs) And it got a little crazy after a while. It just sounds like it was a really fun place to eat and lots of good food. So even though Poncho's wasn't open for very long at all, but Lady Mint's was open for a while, like a few decades, they had such a following and lots and lots of memories around that specific community of people who would come, the owners, Lady Mint's owners, and Tom Lady Mint, who opened it, is still alive today. And Danny, who opened Poncho's, is unfortunately not here today. But hearing about him, Danny, it seems like he was larger than life kind of character. And so it seems like he would just created a really fun and welcoming atmosphere. And so people just remember that and remember feeling like really good to be there. So it's really exciting to, to hear that through other people. The idea of restaurants as we currently think of them today is a fairly new one. And many of the earliest restaurants in the late 1800s and early 1900s were primarily located in hotels. 
One of the stories that Hillary highlighted in her exhibit is that two of Bloomington's earliest standalone restaurants, the Gables and Nick's English Hut, were both started by Greek immigrants to Bloomington. Both buildings remain fixtures of downtown, and Nick's is still in operation today. I asked Hillary to talk a little bit more about the influence that Greek immigrants had on the community and the backlash they faced in the wake of the nativism that accompanied World War I. That was an interesting story that I didn't know until I was doing research for this exhibit, is that I knew that Nick's and uh, the Gables were both founded by Greek immigrant families. So I did know that, and uh, one of our volunteers made sure, he was like, you've got to talk about the Greek influence. You've got to talk about the Greeks, because you can't talk about restaurants without talking about the Greeks. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll do it. And there was actually a really great folklore paper written, oh gosh, I don't even remember, a couple decades ago, a folklore paper and that's over at IU Archives that interviewed, I think it was the Pulitzer family, and they were the ones who opened the Book Nook, which became the Gables. So the Book Nook was originally a bookstore, and it was it did not have food. It had, like, maybe ice cream. And then the Pulitzons took it over and made it into a restaurant rather than a bookstore, and so they dropped the Book Nook name and made it the Gables. So the paper that I was reading from the IU Archives had directed me to another resource that was a much newer book that was just published a couple years ago about Greek candy confectioners in the Midwest. And I was like, cool. I had found out that a lot of the early immigrants to America were really uh, family ties. So like one family member would go and then they, others would follow them and settle in the same place. And so that happened with Nick Rismalos, who opened Nick's English Hut. And he settled in Louisville. Well, it was New York City. And then he went to Louisville. And then he went like he kind of like hopped his way to the to Bloomington and knew another Greek family that was in Bloomington that needed another confectioner, And he knew how to do that. And so um, it was this tie through candy that brought him to Bloomington. And he opened his own candy shop and then went into a restaurant. And then the restaurant was more successful than the candy shop. So he closed the candy shop and stuck with the restaurant, which became Nick's English Hut, what it is today. So it was just kind of this whole journey But this book had this whole section on how Greek immigrants in the 1920s faced prejudice from the KKK and how a lot of them faced attacks, basically like breaking windows, damaging stores, physical attacks to themselves even. I do know that Bloomington had its own KKK chapter here. And so I was like, I wonder if that happened here, if that was, you know, as prevalent as it was in the Midwest. Is that did that happen here? And it did. This author actually cited an oral history of one of the Pulitzen's granddaughters. It was a descendant. And they had just mentioned that, oh, my great grandpa had this candy store and in Bloomington. And I remember going there and there was a KKK march around the square. And so it was the intimidation. They didn't say outright that they were the store was damaged or they were attacked in this um, oral history, but that there was the intimidation tactics. They faced a lot of trials and tribulations being immigrants in this community, especially at that time in America. And I wanted to make sure that was included. Over the next several decades, most restaurants stuck to what might best be referred to as diner food or supper club fare, think sandwiches, eggs, steak, potatoes, prime rib. 
That started to change around the 1970s following the health food trends of the time, but also again through the influence of other cultures. One of Bloomington's unique characteristics is the variety of global cuisine available on 4th Street, located just blocks from downtown and steps away from Indiana University's sample gates. If you live here or have visited here, you would probably recognize the block of houses that have all been converted into restaurants serving Tibetan, Burmese, Indian, Korean, Thai, and other types of cuisine for decades. I know that now that Bloomington is really seen as like an international food destination, and that seems to have risen around about the 80s. And I think that's likely due to a rise in international students in the 70s and 80s. I had heard a story. I This was not really proven, so... I don't know if you take it with a grain of salt, but it was kind of um, that several international restaurants were started because international students graduated and couldn't find positions and couldn't find jobs. And so they would start restaurants that cooking what they knew. And that's kind of how that happened. Uh, so I don't I, I was never able to prove that. But that is something that I had heard. But I know that like Bloomington is really well known for their international food. And I think that that kind of originated around the 80s and, and grew from there. Hillary mentioned that the idea for this exhibit originated from the collection of menus at the museum. As someone who can spend a good bit of time looking at menus for restaurants and places that I may not even ever visit, I think this was one of my favorite parts of the exhibit. I particularly enjoyed the extensive sandwich list for the Jordan Grill, including special shredded lettuce, olive and sliced egg, and pork and peanut butter. It's really fun to look at those <laughs> and see the prices and how prices of things change. One of the menus had like a prime rib steak or something that was like two fifty, And so you're just like, dang, well, I could get that today. The Jordan Grill one is the one that like, that one blows my mind because it's over where TIS is now on 3rd Street. It was literally across the street from IU campus. And so it had a lot of students come in. So the prices are real cheap, like 10 cents, 25 cents. I think 25 cents is like the max thing, the price they have on the menu. But yeah, it's got some real like pork and peanut butter, a sandwich. I was like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. And so yeah, some of them are a little, a little weird. To... I mean, I guess that's kind of like the the Elvis sandwich, right? Like peanut butter yeah. and bacon, maybe the <laughs> right? I was like, precursor. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, how is the pork prepared? <laughs> like yeah. you kind of like, yeah, I need a, a bit questions. more details. <laughs> Hillary was also able to include a few recipes from local restaurants in the exhibit. So the recipes was kind of a, a last minute addition to the exhibit. It was like at the final week of, of installation. And I was like, you know what? It'd kind of be cool if you could like take something home and like make it because I'm talking about restaurants and food and when you think of these restaurants and and if you'd been there you're like oh man the bread from the Dow was just amazing well do I have a rest recipe and oh, there's a whole Dow cookbook and uh, we sell it in the store from what I can entangle untangle it started as a communal kind of kitchen for a religious community I can't find the right word, but it supported it supported the religious community. So the the members would work at the restaurant and then the proceeds of the restaurant would support the workers. So it kind of started out that way and it just expanded because it was the first vegetarian based restaurant because of the religious teachings of the community. Most of their recipes were all vegetarian. They also had a bakery 
Rudy's Bakery is what it was called, attached to, but then also you could just go into the bakery and just buy a loaf of bread and leave. You didn't have to like go to the restaurant to do in order to get bakery items. But it's it turned in. It was very much a product of the 70s. And its downfall was the community's downfall. So the, the kind of the religious community had some troubles and being different. It was a very like it was an Eastern kind of Buddhist religion. And so being in Bloomington in the 70s was very difficult for the community. And so it also faced some backlash in that sense. There was a newspaper article that was published that didn't put the community or the restaurant in the best light. And so the leaders of the religious community left. And so the the community kind of failed and then the restaurant failed. So they were very much intertwined with the religious community. So I tried to include recipes that I could find from the restaurants that are highlighted. I couldn't find everybody because some of them are like, obviously this is a trade secret. I'm not going to share that. Gretchen Groves from the Groves restaurant was very <laughs> close to the chest with her recipes. She was even asked for uh, asked for her recipes from Bon Appetit magazine and she turned them down as she was not going to share her recipes. But she did share one with the local newspaper. We have a couple of cookbooks that we had put together as a history center for fundraisers. And so there were some that were donated recipes, like from Nick's. There's two recipes from Nick's English Hut that were donated to the cookbook for the fundraiser for the history center. So I was able to pull those and use those for the exhibit. I think it's a really nice addition, and I think people really appreciate it. I personally made the um, poppy seed bread recipe from the Dow, and did not turn out well. I don't know what I'm. I tried, but but I'm I'm hoping other people had a better attempt than I did. <laughs> Talking with Hillary and viewing the exhibit, I really started thinking about the way that restaurants shape a community, or maybe vice versa. We have strong memories tied to food and to gathering with others. Many of us, myself included, work in the restaurant industry at one point or another, and our coworkers can become another valuable community, because there's nothing quite like the shared experience of working a dinner shift on the Friday night of graduation weekend. There are other unique traits of a community that can be illustrated by its restaurants. One example is The Hole, which was located in the basement of the BG Pollard Lodge on West 7th Street. The lodge was built in 1950 by the Improved Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks of the World, a black fraternal organization. It was a gathering place for the black residents of the near west side and of Bloomington in general during an era of segregation when not all restaurants were welcoming. It remained an important social hub for the black community until the 1990s. Last year, Indiana Landmarks, a historic preservation organization, placed the building on its list of the 10 most endangered sites in Indiana. Another example of a community being reflected by its restaurants is Bruce's Cafe, the diner on Kirkwood that opened at 3 a.m. every day to cater to the third shift workers of the RCA plant, which used to be one of Bloomington's largest employers. The owner, Bruce, is another local character who I have heard more than a few stories about and who could supposedly carry on a conversation while remembering everyone's orders without breaking a yoke or burning a slice of toast. I asked Hillary for just a few final thoughts on this. Personally, in my life, restaurants have always been like a place that I look forward to going to spend time with people, to gather with others. I'm not the type, I mean, I will, but I'm not the type of person who will like go to a restaurant by myself. I always like want to 
drag somebody along with me or meet somebody there. And so for me, it's always connecting with somebody. And at a restaurant, I remember I have happy memories of connecting with someone, meeting a new friend or gathering together with friends or going to an anniversary or a birthday dinner or something like that. And so I always have these like really fond memories connected to restaurants. And so I wanted to tap into that. And I'm and I feel like a, a large a community at large, if it's a really great restaurant, it's got a lot of those memories connected to that restaurant. Within Bloomington, there's like the Ladyman's Regulars or the the Liars Bench at the Village Inn in Ellettsville was a communal table that these certain group of people would always get be there every morning between eight and nine having coffee, gathering together. Can I curse? She in the breeze. Um, but these people would gather together every morning and gossip together before they started their day. So I just see restaurants as places where people can gather together and create a community. And that's kind of what I was hoping to tap into and, and remind people of their communities that sadly sometimes no longer exist. Like with Lady Men's, it's not here anymore. And so you can't actually get a sandwich at the diner counter anymore. But Hopefully you can come to the History Center and remember some of that. Even though the exhibit's not up anymore, I hope our other exhibits will help, you know, remember some of that Bloomington that's lost. Hillary Fleck is the curator at the Monroe County History Center. You can find more information about the History Center on our website, eartheats.org. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. And yeah, it's a really nice exhibit. I really enjoyed it, and I I could tell a lot of other people really did, too. Well, thank you very much, Toby. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Samantha G, Abraham Hill, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Susan Gray and Hilary Fleck. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artist at Universal Production Music and Toby Foster. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.